This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So removing the stakes, there comes a time in every young tree's life. Now, it's interesting, if, if you know my my illustration of the endless frontier, you could sort of mix a few metaphors here uh, because I always co- say, pull up those tent stakes, march. And, uh, you know, that, that's not the same metaphor we're, we're building on here. We're working on a tree metaphor today, which is, it's a, it's a really profound and, and uh, beautiful one. But removing the stakes, trees in scripture. So there seems to be three key things that, that trees reveal in scripture, which is very fascinating because trees are a huge deal in scripture. Huge deal. I mean, look at Genesis right in the very beginning. And God placed two trees in the midst of the garden. I mean, just right there in the very beginning. Trees. Why why do trees matter? Uh, You know, the the water's bitter uh, and Moses throws in a tree, basically, and the water becomes sweet. We have all sorts of illustrations of trees. If anyone hangs, in the old Jewish understanding of the law, if anyone hangs upon a tree, he's accursed. And so whenever there would be a tree, it's symbolic of something. And anyone hanging on that tree is symbolic. He's rejected of earth. He's he's not deserving of earth, but he's also not deserving of heaven. So he hangs in a juxtaposed position between the two. He's rejected of both. It's a huge deal to hang on a tree. So you have to understand the culture in which Jesus comes and hangs on a tree it's not an accident. This, the, the symbol of a tree is a very, very deep uh, thing to, to the Jew, to, to their understanding. It's a place of judgment. It's a place of decision. It's a place of fruit. And so, just as an illustration, the place of judgment, the day in which you eat, you will surely die. Hey, you come to that tree and you eat of that tree, you will receive a judgment. In other words, there, it's a place of judgment. Uh, anyone who hangs upon a tree is accursed. It's a place of judgment. Uh, the brazen serpent that was, you know, he says he's hung on a pole. If you want to say it, it's a, it's a symbol of a curse, the serpent, hanging on a tree. Okay, if you want to look at it that way, that's exactly what it is. It's a picture of the cross in the Old Testament, which is hard for us to comprehend. Because, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's a serpent hanging on the tree. Yeah, it's a symbol of the curse. And anyone who hangs upon a tree. But what's interesting is even in the camp of the Israelites, anyone who would humble themselves and acknowledge that they were a sinner. And they came to that brazen serpent and looked upon it in faith, would be healed. Profound picture of the cross, but it's a picture of a tree. It's a place of decision. Not just a place of judgment, it's a place of decision. How do you decide at that tree? And then uh, the T-O-T-K-O-G-E, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a place of decision. (laughs) How, How are you going to handle that tree? And so there's two trees in each of our lives too. You have the bait of this world, and it's, it's beckoning you, and you also have the second tree, the cross. And you stand between the two trees. Which way are you going to go? It's a, a tree is a place of decision. And of course, the cross is the fulfillment of all of this. It's a place of judgment, and it's a place of decision. And strangely, it's a place of fruit. But the fig tree without fruit. Remember, Jesus comes up to the fig tree, and it, it hasn't produced fruit, and so he curses it, and it withers. Poor tree. We always feel bad for that tree. 
And then we have the fig tree with fruit, which is interesting because this whole idea, I'm not teaching on fig trees today, but a sycamore tree. Do you remember who was up in a sycamore tree? Zacchaeus. A sycamore tree to us is actually a different tree than it is to the Jews. To the Jews, what we, under, what we define as a sycamore tree was a fig tree. So we have a tree that Jesus comes to. He's hungry and there's no figs. And then we have, and we know Jesus is hungry because he's going to go to Zacchaeus' house, right? So it must have been, I mean, maybe mealtime, right? He comes to a fig tree, and he looks up, and behold, a fig uh, in there. And then the fig takes him to his house and feeds him. Uh, but what's interesting is, again, we understand that fruit trees are very significant and that God desires something from the fig tree. There's a whole bunch of parables that deal with this, even in Scripture. So we have a tree, okay? I'm just, I'm just laying that out. That's... I'm not trying to teach on trees as much as giving you a foundation for where I'm going. So the gospel explained with trees. Very simply, there's two trees. And just as there was two trees in the garden, there's two trees in our life. We have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have the cross. And how you choose at the tree affects your eternity. The day in which you eat of the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die. It's called the law of sin and death, or you sin, you die. But there's a higher law, and that's you believe, you live. There's another tree, and it's called the cross. And Jesus says, basically, unless you eat of the fruit of this tree, which is the person of Jesus, you have no life in you. The first tree, you eat, you die. The second tree, unless you eat, you cannot live. And so what we have is... With trees, a summation of the gospel. There are two trees. The second tree is the tree of life. First tree, we've all eaten of it in and through Adam and Eve. And as a result, we share in that curse, in that death. But there is one means of escape, and that is to turn to the second tree. That Jesus himself came and hung upon and made himself available as food and says, unless you eat of this, you can't have life. Please, eat of me. So a capital T tree and the lowercase t tree. So a capital T tree, you know, the cross is the symbol of all trees. If you want to say it that way, it fulfills the whole idea of a tree. So everything in scripture that's revealed of trees is found in the cross. It's an amazing picture. But then there's this lowercase dimension where the cross, though it is God's work, it is being referenced and revealed in a small way in all of us of how we handle the similar decisions, how we obey the Holy Spirit. So a capital T, the tree of all trees, the cross. I'm going to say a lowercase t, the trees that yearn to showcase the tree. So it's the church. We as the church are like a tree, and I'm going to go into this. That's what I'm going to focus on. And, but we're not the tree. You know, you come to the church and it doesn't mean you're saved just because you walk into a church building. It's Christ that saves. And yet what we are is a small lowercase representation of something that you're supposed to see that cross, the message of that cross in and through us. We are a revelatory device of something divine. We are a carrying device of God's glory. We are revealers of the gospel truth. And so as a result, we're not the tree, but we're like this lowercase that reveals something. So Luke 4, which is the scripture Elijah read in the beginning uh, today, speaking of Jesus, so he, he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, 
he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Okay, pause right there. This is very clearly to all Jews a scripture that reveals, re- reveals refers directly to the Messiah. This is, the Messiah is the anointed one. In the Greek, we call it the Christos, the Christ. The one upon whom God's anointing is. In the Old Testament, amongst the, in the Hebrew language, it would have been the Messiah. And so, this is speaking of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the voice of even the Messiah speaking in Isaiah 61. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Okay, so... Those are the words in the Old Testament, literally of the Messiah speaking. And so what we have is Jesus gets up, opens it to a very specific spot in Isaiah. We know it as Isaiah 61, and reads this. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is a good moment in history, guys. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa! (laughs) I don't know if you guys catch what just took place. He gets up and reads a very clear scripture passage about the Messiah, and then sits down. Everyone looks at him and he says, Yep, I am he. I am that Messiah. Oh, big moment in history. They didn't respond as well to it as maybe we are responding right now. So Isaiah 61, now I'm going to read this. This is what Jesus is referencing, okay? And there's a reason why I'm going through this little exercise, because there's more to what he reads or what is said in Isaiah 61. In other words, he gives what is necessary for them to recognize, yes, this is fulfilled. But there's more to it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console all those those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So 750 years before Jesus actually opens up that scroll and reads from this spot, Isaiah writes this. Now, this is all, as we said, this is a statement of the Messiah. It's actually his voice speaking in the Old Testament, which is quite a profound statement. But there is a result. In other words, why did the Messiah come? This is, it's going to actually say, so that. In other words, all of this is accomplished in and through this Messiah so that something could happen. That's what I want to emphasize here. And so we see it underlined. I mean, it's sort of hard for you to miss it the way I have it up there on the screen. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So three very specific things that flow out of this that I want to lift out. That is that they may be called trees of righteousness. You'll notice that I put the word terebinth in there because that's the Hebrew word. And it's a great word. Okay, The word tree, in some translations say oaks of righteousness. Both the word trees and oaks fall far short of what this word is. Okay, So the Messiah has come. 
He has been anointed to do these very specific things in order that something may happen. That we may be called trees, oaks, terebinth of righteousness. That we might be the, called the planting of the Lord, that God may be glorified. So there's something about trees and what God has desired to do. And most of you haven't ever thought of, you know, there's all sorts of grand metaphors. You know, sheep. Well, sheep aren't, isn't a grand metaphor. It was a funny way of saying it. Uh, but there's, there's grand metaphors that we use around Ellerslie all the time. The Irish elk. Uh, you know, the Hudson Taylors, Amy Carmichael's return. We have the, the bulging left bicep. I don't know if you've heard that one. I really like that one. But there's all these really rich, meaty metaphors of the grandeur coming back. But this is actually, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest. We are called, Jesus has come to accomplish something so that we may be called terebinth of righteousness. What is a terebinth? It's a tree, so that's an accurate translation, except for it's not just your average tree. If I say tree to you, you think of just a normal everyday tree out here. But a terebinth is not your normal everyday tree. To a Jew, to understand the word terebinth is like, whoa, that's a set-apart tree amongst all trees. That's a tree of trees. So it's a tree, but it's more than that. These particular trees were a clear picture in the land of Israel of the Almighty. They literally were symbolic of the Almighty to all the nation. Because these trees, when they arrived in the land, were there. And for thousands of years, they were still there. In other words, these trees were before them. So they oftentimes referred to them as Ojijian. They were without beginning and no end. They were a picture on the landscape of Israel. In the very geography of Israel, they were a picture of the Almighty to all the people of Israel. So it's a clear picture in the land of Israel of the Almighty that that which has no beginning nor ending. A terebinth is a massive emblem of God's strength. His constancy is an enduring presence. It doesn't matter what storm comes up, that terebinth doesn't even wince. These things were measured oftentimes close to 23 feet in diameter. I'm sorry, in circumference. And that is bigger than most trees we encounter. Let's just put it that way. And what's interesting, one of my favorite things about the terebinth is that uh, when you hear the Valley of Elah, where David fought Goliath, that's the Valley of the Great Tree. There was a great terebinth in the middle of that valley. And so my mental picture of David against Goliath is David standing, and there's Goliath, and there's this huge tree that overshadows him. What would the tree have symbolized? The Almighty. And who's bigger? Goliath? Yeah, he might be tall, 12 and a half feet, but have you seen that tree? Who's bigger? And so he's, when, when, when David starts prophesying Goliath's direction, saying, your head is going to be removed today, I just always picture that big tree standing ab- above him. And it's just like he's almost chuckling inside. Do you know who you're messing with? You've picked on the armies of the living God. Okay, so this is a terebinth. Of course, a terebinth is not God. I mean, I hope you pick up on that. Just because it's a symbol does not mean it is God. It's it's just a tree. It's made of wood. It has a root system. However, it's a symbol of something. It reminds the culture around of something grand. So it's not God, but it is a picture of God to everyone that sees it. So the Messiah is coming that we might be called terebinth of righteousness. We are called to be terebinth. So I'm going to break that up into two different we's. As an individual believer, I would say we're called to be terebinth. We're called to showcase the Almighty. We are. 
However, I'm going to put a small T on that. Okay, that's a small lowercase t terabith. Each one of us as individuals is called to showcase Jesus Christ. However, the true picture of Christ is not just found in the individual Christian. It's found in all of us together. And that's the capital T. The church is the terabith, the capital T. We are the ones that on the landscape of, of this world actually are meant to showcase and remind the world that there is a God in heaven. And that is something very, very precious that I don't want to ever see denigrated in this generation. I see the church and it's sliding, it's slipping, it's not looking so hot. And I have a passion to see that the work of the Messiah is fully accomplished. So the debate about staking young trees. Remember, our our message was about removing the stakes. And so to stake a tree, now I'm not an arborist. I'm not an expert in trees. So there could be some things that I say today that there's an arborist out there uh, in the audience that's sort of like shaking his head going, he really doesn't get it. However, I've, I've studied it enough to at least be dangerous, if you could say it that way, okay? If you gave me a tree to plant, it would probably die. But uh, I can at least talk about what people do when they live, okay? So the debate about staking young trees, it's interesting. Just like in Christianity, have you ever noticed, no matter what topic you bring up, there's opposing opinions on it? I don't know if there's anything in life that people just agree on. No matter what it is, uh, like even if you were to say, these chairs are black, then someone would say, that's not black. That's a deep shade of blue-ish black, and it has dots on it. You didn't say dots, and so you're incorrect. I mean, no matter what you say in life, there's always someone with an alternate view on it, okay? So you take staking trees. Like, I take it for granted that it's like, okay, a tree, if it's going to grow up healthy, should be staked. It should have that wrap, you know, that tree wrap around it. There's just certain things you do, and that helps it grow up strong. Oh, well, no, there's debate about that, okay? So I'm going to enter, you know, bring you into the debate. Option one, stake them for life. So it's not just, this is like the hyper view of staking. It's like, no, you don't just stake them. You keep the stakes on there, okay? Because you're going to notice other people will say, no, you should stake them, but you need to remove those stakes at a certain point of time. But then there's this other, you know, classification that says, no, you stake them for life, okay? So that's option one. Certain trees, like large apple trees, will always need that bit of extra support to carry the heavy fruit weight. As a result, it is only loving to stake them young and to keep the stakes in place so that the tree can reach its full potential in fruit bearing. Most of us would liken this to a kid growing up in a home and never leaving. So he's like 72 years old and his parents are 99 and they're still like, go clean your room, you know, Chucky. Uh, and, uh, so, and something about it seems a little awkward, okay? Now, but there are those that are very passionate about it. It's like, no, there's certain trees you have to keep the stakes on, okay? So they're very passionate about those things. And option two, stake them only for a season, okay? Now, I'm going to give away as I progress that this is how I lean, okay? This is, of course, this is how I think the Bible leans, but... You just need to know these are debatable points, and that's okay. Option two, stake them only for a season. It is critical to stake young fruit trees, but only for a season, one to three years typically, lest you rob the tree of its need to face the winds on the merits of its own root system. You see, when you stake it, what you're doing is you're protecting it so that it can set down a root system. And when winds gust, if you've staked it correctly, it can stand firm in the, in the winds. However... As an arborist would say, if you keep those stakes on, then it actually begins to harm the tree when it is now ready to face the winds on its own because it's actually the winds gusting against it that strengthen its root system to the level it needs for life. And so it's a fascinating statement where the second option is like you need to stake it, 
but only for a certain point in time. And when it's ready to be unstaked, you really need to unstake it. Because at that point, it's actually harmful to the tree if you keep the stakes on. And option number three, yeah, there is a view that says don't stake them at all, okay? And uh, for a tree to grow and develop properly, it must sway in the breeze. This is the, the entire construct. You don't give too much governance to a young tree. Let it experience the wind. Well, it might fall over. I know. But how's it going to grow a strong root system unless you give it that risk? It needs to risk falling over. So it must be able to move. It must face the risk of root failure to be able to establish strong roots. The wind is the tree's great friend. If it is robbed of the important movement of swaying, its roots will never properly develop their necessary strength. It sort of falls into that category. I remember Kel Muckeroy and I having a conversation about immune system. And you know, I made some comment like, you know, Reese and Lily never get sick. And he's like, well, you know, it's because they were exposed to every you know, ill they could possibly face in Haiti. And it's an interesting point. It's like, is it wise to keep your kids from certain infectious things when they're young so that they're because I look at Reese and Lily who are exposed to all of it and they're strong it's it's a I mean this is you could see how the reasoning goes but when it comes to being in a position of leadership over something you're the tree caretaker you're the arborist you're the one that plants it you have to sort of know where you land on this do I stake it and then leave it there and hold it in place forever and let it grow as far as it can as long as it's staked or do I stake it for a season give it some protection and then remove the stakes and say you're on your own buddy and then when the winds come it's like there's a little gulp because they've never faced a wind like that but I think they're ready for that wind or do you just plant a tree and go good luck I mean, there's, there's three different ways of looking at this. And this is going to affect all of us in here in some regard because every single one of us is going to have to caretake for something in our life. When you have kids, this becomes a huge issue. Those three things I just read actually fall into the category of parenting styles right there. And you could have a domineering parenting style which just says, you know, I'm going to make the decisions for you forever. Or... You could have that second tier, which is just sort of like, okay, I recognize that I have a role in your development, but I don't want to stretch my role beyond what I'm supposed to. I I want to set you up to serve God, not to serve me. And then you have option three, which is just let them run wild. Okay, that's how I interpret it, okay? In other words, don't stake them at all. You don't need to tell them what to do. Just sort of let them have the wind rush against their hair and take them where they want. Uh, you know, it's like, ah, it's very uncomfortable for me. That's not where I default, okay? Just so you know, I default to two, the second one. I don't like the over-governance, but I don't like the under-governance. I like, I like a little bit of governance in there that is appropriate. So I'm going to let Bartlett Tree Research Laboratories speak, okay, since they're a little more knowledgeable about this than I am. When trees are first planted, there is an establishment period lasting at least two years when intensive maintenance is required. New plantings also require frequent inspections and intensive care to maintain them through the critical establishment period. In order to achieve these goals, a program of monitoring, soil treatments, and pest management is required. New plantings are very fragile and can decline and die rapidly due to environmental stress or pest infestations. Frequent inspections are essential to detect subtle changes in plant health and pest infestations. We would call this discipleship. In the church, that's what it is. In other words, it is a deliberate staking to say, okay, we're going to work with you in this season, 
because you want someone who's more knowledgeable than you are as a tree. Because pests will get you. That's actually, when Paul is writing the pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, he actually is talking about this exact thing. He's like, you have to be watchful not to release a novice into a position of leadership too quickly. Because a novice is very susceptible, you could say, to pest infestation, very specifically, to the sin of Lucifer, which is pride. And so as a result, you want to stake them And you want to give a sense of structure to them and not release them too quickly, lest they actually have their root system be pulled up out of the ground and they end up losing everything. And so it's actually part of the wisdom of the church to create. Now, we wouldn't call it staking. We don't call it tree wrap. You know, in scripture, that's not our normal terminology for it. But in a sense, we're growing trees. You know, as a leader, I can't grow a tree. I, I really can't. This is God's business. He's the one that is, plants you. It's the Holy Spirit's work to plant, and it's the Holy Spirit's wor- uh, work to truly grow. But at the same time, we participate in God's work. And that's the tension that we oftentimes face. As a preacher, I can speak truth, but that doesn't mean you get it. It doesn't mean you receive it. It doesn't mean it sinks deep into, your, into the soil of your soul and changes you. I'm very helpless as a leader of the church because it has to be the Spirit of God that is doing the work, but I participate in it. So he can, as I yield to the Holy Spirit, he can use my words to affect you and change you, but it was still him that did the work. And the same is true here with the planting of the Lord. This is what the Messiah desires to do. He desires to plant each one of us as individuals to grow up strong, but he also desires to plant us as a church. In a sense, we are a church plant. Isn't that a funny uh, term to call something a church plant? Yeah, it's like a tree plant uh, is what we are. We are a planting of the Lord. This, this work here at Ellerslie isn't a work of any man. I don't even know how to describe it. If you try and go back in the history of this church, it's like sort of mysterious how we ended up where we're at now. And that's because it's a planting of the Lord that involves a whole bunch of men and women that participated in micro decisions along the way God allowed us to participate but this is something that he has done so our church's approach to growth and development so from the very beginning in our church this is I'm going to give it away right here if you haven't figured it out so far we believe that the greatest tree health is found in staking for a season and then proactively removing the stakes at the point when now this continues. In other words, that when leads to something. In other words, there's, there's certain signals that show when that readiness is. So I'm going to give you those. When the tree is showing a strong root system that is able to find deep waters on its own, when it has an immunity, when its immunity has developed to common tree diseases and blights, and a hardiness of core strength is demonstrated with eager readiness to face the gusting winds. You see, at every juncture, that tree, uh, if, Hudson's in the third row here, if Hudson, you know, it's a tension that I have as a dad because I want him to be ready to go and to change the world. But I don't want to send him too early because I want to send him when I know certain things are in place. And it's not just an age thing. It's a readiness thing. And some people might be ready at a younger age. Some people might need a few more years. And that's part of where the parent comes in when it's training children to discern that and not to just have a pat answer. It's like, well, at the age of 18, we kick you out of the house. Stakes come off. But certain children, imagine if that child had a physical disability. Imagine if the child had a mental disability. Can you see reasons why we should have variables in this? Well, sometimes it's 
spiritual development. They're slower. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I remember my dad taking a lot of pressure off my life. We grew up in a culture where at the age of 22, when you graduate from college, you better have your life figured out. I mean, that's just a lot of pressure, right? And in other countries, you have to have your whole career mapped out by the age of 13. I mean, you're making life decisions very early. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. And my dad, you know, put his hand on my shoulder once when I, I think I was in college, and he probably noticed that I was feeling some stress. It's like, what, what, uh, what major are you choosing? Where are you going with this? Because everyone's asking the questions. What are you doing with your life? Ah, I'm, uh, and my dad puts his hand on my shoulder and says, don't worry. Jesus uh, was ready by the age of 30. You have a few more years. In other words, if Jesus, the Son of God, come to this earth, was prepared for 30 years, that makes sense. I don't need to just follow the American cultural model. I'll go after his model because I could use those years. But the truth of the matter is we all mature at different rates and paces. And the arborist or whoever is in the position of responsibility for taking those stakes off wants to know that that tree is ready for that, if he truly or she truly cares about that tree. And so that, that's important here because a strong root system needs to be in place. If there's a shallow root system and you take off those stakes, first wind that gusts up against it will knock it over. And so as a result, what you want to do is train that tree to actually sink its roots down. And so if it's, and that's part of just the growth process. It takes a long time for roots to actually grow deeper and to have a more solid foundation. Immunity builds. And I don't know if you found this out in your own uh, spiritual life and development, but there are certain things you were susceptible to when you first became a Christian. Little ploys of the enemy, different temptations that he, I mean, he just pulled the wool over your eyes. Uh, He's good at what he does, right? But you begin to be sensitive. You build up an immunity to that. And you sort of look his way. It's like, I got you on that one now. Okay, you're not getting away with that one now. And what you're doing is you're developing an immunity to the devil's schemes and ploys. You understand how to wear the armor of God. You understand how to walk this life out as opposed to constantly just being uh, the enemy's plaything, and he gets away with whatever he wants. You're building an immunity. And a hardiness of core strength is demonstrated with eager readiness to face the gusting winds. One of the things that uh, is a tricky thing for every parent is when the child is like, I want to be on my own. I want to face the winds. It's a tough one because that's a signal of readiness at one side, but it could also be a signal of immaturity. And so it's a tension because what you want is you want that tree to say, I'm ready, Father. I'm ready to face it. But you, you also want to make sure that they are ready. And so if they don't have that, it can scare you. It's like, okay, we're going to take the stakes off. They're like, no, no, don't take the stakes off. Okay, what you want is that you want them to say, yes, I'm ready. I still remember a big step forward in my life where some stakes got taken out. Uh, It's looking back, it's just really embarrassing. But for me, it was a huge deal. My dad had always bought me clothes. My dad is like a very, I should say, he was a well-dressed man. I don't want to criticize the way he dresses now, but he dresses more like a dad uh, now than he did. Uh, but he used to be, you know, he was a high-end business guy, and he had all his suits lined up in his, uh, in his closet, and his shoes were always polished. And he took that from my, my grandpa, who always knew how to wear his, wear his fedora. And I mean, there was like this whole style thing that was passed down. And so my dad would always take me out, and he always wanted to get me suits. I didn't want a suit. And my dad would measure it. I never liked it because they'd measure my neck. And like, oh, you have a thin neck. Thank you. I don't ever want to shop for suits again. I don't like it when they tell me I have a thin neck. 
And so there's some sensitivity here inside of Eric that we're bringing up. But I remember uh, that I, I had gone through a season on the mission field, and all my clothes were just sort of getting ragged. Okay, and uh, I remember my dad being a little concerned because I was going to get married. And so he said, Eric, I'm just thinking that maybe I could take you out before the, the wedding and get you set up, uh, get, you, get you some clothes. This is a huge deal for me because for me, that's what I'd always leaned on. I mean, my dad, and I, you know, it's always pretty expensive when you go out with my dad to buy a whole bunch of clothes. And I wanted to look good for Leslie. I wanted to come into that, that next stage of my life and you know, have the fedora on just right, right? And I remember the moment I said, no, I need to do this myself. Okay? And my, I still remember my dad. It's like, I understand. I understand. I think that's good. I think that's good. <laughs> and yet that's those key moments that you want to see as an arborist in the planting. You want to see that they want it too. They have a sense of readiness. I think we're ready, Dad. I think we're ready. And so I, I've never gone through this. I mean, my oldest is 14, so I'm a little scared even bringing this up that Hudson's going to get some ideas. and go, like, I think I'm ready. Uh, but it's good. That's a good process, even though it's a scary one. So the history of our church. Remember, this is all headed somewhere. So we started with what we call the student church. We didn't know what to call it. But we actually developed a gathering on Sundays because when students were here, we wanted to practice being the body of Christ. Because so many churches are denominational, well, almost every church is a denominational extension, we wanted to function as the body without denominational distinguishing uh, between us, but to say, hey, let's lift high Jesus and him crucified. And that experiment was so profound. But what's interesting is it wasn't just our students. We started to get people from all over the community. People would travel in from, you know, around the country, even the world, and would just sort of hang out. And it's like, are we welcome in here? Oh, sure, come on in. And then our sermons, I mean, my, those sermons that we had were being listened to five to 10,000 people a week. It was just like this huge following for this little diddly squat uh, student church, right? Well, and so we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. I had made a statement before Ellerslie started. It's like, okay. Guys, I know I'm supposed to lead this, but I'm not going to lead a church. Okay, so we're going to have to find a, a pastor for this. And, well, that didn't happen. I, you can sort of see, you know, the dynamics of, of what took place. Okay, I'll take it for a season, but just for a season. I'm going to have my hands full over here. And then that season just kept going and going and going, which is part of the early history. And some of you were here, and you remember the, the tension that we went through where it sort of felt like you were window shopping when you were here, where you could look at the church, but you couldn't really enter into participating in the church because we weren't really a normal church. You were just sort of watching what we were doing on Sunday morning. And that created this funny tension, which I didn't like. It wasn't like I was saying, hey, let's have a tension. We just had one. And so it became evident that we needed to take a step towards having some kind of local body and some kind of local governance, but how do we do that? And so the next step was the gathering of men, and, and many of you in here were, were at that. Uh, we had 18 men for, I don't know, it was like a year or so that we met together every Sunday. And the goal was, because one of the principles in Scripture is don't lay hands on any man quickly. If you're going to give him authority in something, you need to know him. You need to know his spiritual life. And so I had 18 different men that I met with for, I think it was about a year. Steve, does that sound about right? And it was just a profound, uh, powerful time that we had in that. But out of that came a nomination for a specific group, which I think at the time was five 
men to actually take the initial leadership of being pastor and elders underneath our leadership as we call them executive pastors, which was Dan McConaughey, Nathan Johnson, and, and myself. And uh, so that became the planting of the young tree and the staking of the young tree. If you guys remember family ship when we were first setting these things in, that's exactly what it was. It was like, okay, we, we're not exactly sure how this grows. We just want to make sure that there's some form of governance with it. Because some people, when you see governance in the church, you sort of recoil because you've seen governance in the church misused. And I get it. I, I, I really do get it. The abusive use of government in a church, just like we talked about option one, where it's just like, you will be staked for life, is a very oppressive thing. And yet the need for actual, uh, actually a setup of government is very, very important. And God's the one that prescribes it. Start studying scripture for just the concept of government. And you recognize government itself is not evil. Now, evil people can enter government and sway government to do evil things. But government itself is a godly concept. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. The government shall be upon his shoulders. In other words, this is his operation. And he starts by giving us self-governance. And so he says, I want you to have authority in this body under my rulership as king of kings to tell your body what to do, to bring it into subjection. And then we have governance in marriage. We have governance in home. We have governance in the church. We have governance in society, civil leaders. It's just, it's God's concept. It's God's idea. And so in this environment, we ended up creating a government. It's a church. It's a local church as we would all understand it. And yet in the process it stirred up all sorts of things in here in the most positive sense. It got us all thinking about how church works because when you're just watching church as opposed to participating in a church, it stirs up all sorts of wonderful things. I would say over these, how many years has it been? Could someone give me a a number for that? Something Bo would usually know. Five? It's been five years. I would say for us, if you were to have all of us as pastors come up, because there's basically nine of us, because we added Walter in uh, a few years into it. Is that what it was? I don't remember how long into it was. But we would all say it's actually been one of the most profound things we've ever walked through, is learning how to work together as a group to lead a church. How does this work? What does this look like? Because we don't want to just take, borrow from somewhere else. We want to go to the scriptures and say, what does this look like? And it's been a profound and beautiful picture. So why am I saying this? Because we are ready to unstake the young tree. This is saying here. The process that we're going through as a church, I guess if I could liken it to something that I've never even gone through, it would be like me sending off Hudson to the mission field. Where... uh, you feel vulnerable at one level, but you're very excited at the other. That when we started this, our goal was not to stake it for life. It was to stake it until it was ready and mature to be able to stand on its own and face the winds by itself. So every one of the pastors agree that the signs of maturity are there. Every one of the pastors agree that it is important for the tree to be unstaked. And every one of the pastors agreed this young tree is ready to face the gusting winds. So this church is the young tree. The, the stakes, if you want to say it, uh, would be the executive leadership under Ellerslie. And we feel that since it was originally started with the intention of 
helping solidify whatever this body is locally. Let's see how we can take the next steps. And so we created a government for it. And that government, those pastoring elders are strong. They're ready. And if any of you know them, you could probably nod along and say, I guess that makes sense. That there's no reason to hinder and to you know, say, oh, this is just an apple tree. We need to keep the stakes on forever. But to say, I think it's ready to actually grow up and to face those winds. The six weeks of unstaking. So what we have strategized is a process of, whether we call it unstaking moving forward, it's not the most poetic uh, name for it, but it's at least a mental picture that you guys can recognize, that this is a planting of the Lord. This isn't something that I started, for instance. It's more I responded to it, just as all of you did. We've responded to something God has done in our midst, and it's been beautiful. And yet there is a need... For instance, just as an illustration, I have limited time in my life, and I am so occupied in my ministerial life with what goes on in this campus during the week, in the training. And I have men that can actually take their time and focus on this, and yet there's so many checkoffs that have to take place because we have a stake system in place that if we were to lift out those stakes, it actually frees this church body to move forward stronger, faster. And so you have to recognize there's a tension inside of me with this, but it's a good one. You should, if you could have been a fly on the wall over the past, what's it been? I think it was originally brought up maybe eight, nine months ago. Uh, but there's a, if you could have been a fly on the wall to see the unique conversations of how we talk about these things in our midst and how we show deference and respect to each other and yet make appeals. And it's been a very, very good and healthy process. That's one thing I can say is we have a troop of very honorable men here. And where we're headed is something that seems to be growing up in all of us simultaneously and with a hearty amen from all of us. So these are the six weeks. The next four weeks are going to be with me, including this one. So the next three weeks. And we're doing four very specific messages to sort of help us as a body understand where we're going and to, to rally. And then the following two, be, two weeks will be with the other, if you want to call them stakes, uh, the other two executive pastors, Dan and Nathan. And then on September 8th, I'm going to be back and we're going to do a commissioning service. I can't tell you exactly what this is all going to look like. And I don't think if you asked any of the pastors, they have it all figured out either. It's less of me and more of the local pastors. And so I don't know if you could get yourself in my shoes on that. This has been something that I've been doing here for 10 years. Uh, And we started the church, well, our student church, 10 years, I think it's this fall. Uh, And it's a change is always a awkward, gangly sort of pubertized process. And yet in this, there's been a grace upon it and a beauty. And so I'm at peace. I'm at rest. And I've really appreciated how these men have walked uh, through it uh, all together as as a team. So uh, that's what to expect and how this applies to your life. I actually, my desire in this church is to never just give you some data or some facts, but to lead you to Jesus my desire is that your final taste in your mouth isn't, you know, oh, that's an interesting thought, but is Jesus, and that you reflect upon him, you see more of him. And so if I could say for all of us, 
even though the church is, you know, we're talking about the church, well, that's you. And so we're all in a transition time of sorts. And how we handle transition is one of the number one things that proves us as Christians, because there's going to be many transition seasons in our life. I mean, God's the one that made four seasons in a year. And, uh, and why does that sound funny? Is it four? Yeah, there's four seasons, right? It sounds funny. I was thinking, are there three? There's four. Uh, and I can't think of what all four are off the top of my head, but I know they're there. Spring, summer, fall, and winter. Okay, good. Uh, but seasons are a part of our life. And just like the Powell's leaving, it's hard. It really is. And we would prefer sometimes to just say, can't we keep our kids young? Can't we just keep them all at that same age? I mean, all of us as parents have thought these thoughts at different times. And yet, just as much as there's a tension and a pain in seeing our kids grow up, there's also a joy and a delight in seeing them press forward. One of the things that I want us to remember is that God's grace is sufficient in all of these things, and he is a good God. He has led us this far as a church, and he has built something very beautiful, a picture of himself in here. This is such a rare and unusual church, and I cherish that. I I treasure what God has done. And so I want us to just, you know, even as we finish with song today, to reflect upon that and to truly worship him, for he is worthy. Uh, Our Messiah has come, and he came with a very specific purpose, And that purpose is to build Terebinth. That purpose is to plant his church for the glory of God. And so our job is to say, amen, do it in me, do it in us. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.